From the studios of Teeing It Up in the Swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling for uh, June tw uh, 25th. Yes, it is still June. Uh, although, although my mind has been in July a lot lately for some reason. Um, 2021, Danny Flecka with us uh, here to talk about a bunch of stuff that's happened in the world of soccer and other sports since he's last been on. Um, Danny, let's start here because it's been a while since uh, since you've been on since this happened. A lot of people pointed to the U.S. men's national team win against Mexico as this dawning of a new day for U.S. soccer. And what you said to me is, it's nice, it's positive, but I think there was more to that than just the U.S. being great. That it was also Mexico having their flaws. So that while you can't take away the fact that that that, that this win and, and the context of who was on that squad is positive, there is another side to it that has to be looked at on equal footing. Yeah, I mean, I didn't watch that game, so it's really hard for me to comment <laughs> on exactly how that game played out. But, you know, watching the highlights and reading up on it, it sounds like both teams made a ton of mistakes. Uh... There was a lot of opportunity for Mexico to win that game. There was a lot of opportunity there for the United States to, to win that game, you know, in a much better fashion. But, you know, what we saw, I think, in that game, if you're a U.S. men's national team fan, is that the building blocks that you've heard so much about the last couple of years, you know, Pulisic, Weston McKinney, um, you know, Sergio Dest, like these guys, uh, Reina, all stepped up to the plate and really played admirably. And, you know, Pulisic with the game-winning penalty kick. Um, you know, the goalkeeper, I think his name was Horvath, I want to say, with the, the excellent PK kick, um, PK kick save. You know, we saw these, these pieces of this men's national team, you know, come together and face some adversity, um, overcome that adversity, and, and win a game for them that was really monumental because – that group of players needs to understand what it takes to be successful on a national stage as well as, you know, what they need to do in order to play together to reach that success. Um, but big picture, the, the win, the, the game means, means very, very little. Um, you know, there's still five years until the World Cup, um, and a lot can change. No, I'm sorry. Next year's the World Cup. Yes, and then yes. And they still need to qualify for that. Um, so that's still not, you know, etched in stone of them being in that tournament. And that tournament, too, I think is going to be really, really weird to begin with for it's being played, the time of year, and everything else like that. Um, but, you know, th this team still has a long way to go. Um, and, and it's just good to kind of see them um, having that success. And, you know, in general, the players on that team experienced a ton of success this year in Europe, you know, with Pulisic being the first men, U.S. Men, uh, men's uh, team member to ever hoist the Champions League uh, trophy. Um, on the other side, in Man City, Zach Steffen is the backup goalkeeper there. And then, you know, in Spain, Dest had a great year for Barcelona. McKinney had a great year for Juventus in Italy. Reina is going to be a building block um, for Borussia Dortmund in Germany. So the, the men's team is getting more and more exposure for their players on bigger stages, you know, internationally. 
The key now is piecing it all together domestically, creating a style of play and a lineup that suits the players that you have available to you, and then taking that style of play, tenacity, and, and you know tactics on a national on a international level against teams that you're going to play like in Europe and South America that are going to be roadblocks for you, uh, you know, when you play in these big national tournaments. So, um, you know, great win for them, positive win for them. Still a lot left uh, for them to do from a, from a playing standpoint to really be respected in that top 10, top 15, you know, team conversation. But it was nice to see these players take what they've learned in Europe on the stages that they played there, translate it to, you know, their domestic team and, you know, be able to come through and beat one of their biggest rivals, if not their biggest rival. Yeah. Um, let's flip now to the Euros. Um, the, the knockout stage starts tomorrow. Uh, you'll see Wales, Denmark at 11.30 a.m. Eastern on ESPN, followed by Italy Italy versus Austria, 2.30 p.m. on ABC. You look at who is left in this tournament, and four of the top five teams in the FIFA World Rankings um, are still there. Belgium, France, England, Portugal. So, as you look at who is left in the round of 16, where is, where is your eyes uh, going to? Yeah, I mean, the left side of the bracket is absolutely loaded. You have Belgium, Portugal, Italy, Spain. Um, there's another team in there I can't remember. I don't have it in front of me. And the right side of the bracket, uh, yeah, Croatia is playing Spain, uh, you know, um, and France is on that side too. Yeah. So it's a, it's a loaded bracket um, on the left side. On the right side, it's a little bit easier. You know, when you look at it, you know, England's on that side, um, and, and you know, they have a, a pretty good path. They have Sweden, Ukraine. You know, the, these lower level teams are on the on the right side of the bracket. What I, I'm looking at, you know, starting tomorrow is in the group stages. We saw a little bit of a free flowing type of play from a lot of teams and that was evident because it's the highest scoring Euros in the group stages ever. What we wow. tend to see in knockouts is a little bit more of a pragmatic approach, right? You want to be able to last the game and give your team the best shot to win, so we we tend to see a little bit more conservative approach to tactics. Um, lineup choices tend to be a little bit more conservative as well. Um, and substitution patterns, which are going to be interesting this time around because there's five, not three, um, tend to be a little bit more conservative. So these free-flowing teams that have been playing in these group stages, like Belgium, you know, was putting up two to three goals a game. Italy was putting up two to three goals a game. Um, you know, will they be able to take that same style of play they use in the group stages and translate it to the knockout stages where, in reality, you're playing better competition and it's a... Uh, more of a do-or-die situation. So it's going to be interesting to see which of those teams doesn't really change their approach and really takes it to them. Um, I think some of the matchups do provide us that opportunity to see that. But there's also some matchups that I think we're going to see in the round of 16 that we're just going to, you know, have to understand it's going to be, a, a, you know, batting down the hatches, 90 minutes of no goals, and, you know, take it to extra time and potentially PKs. Um so there, there are some teams that are going to approach their games that way. But I think when we look at it from 
you know, some of these early matchups, like I think tomorrow the Italy game will be a little bit more open. Um, you know, it's not like Italy has been playing in the past where they kind of just play defense and hope to counter and, and get a goal that way. They've been a little bit more of a pressing team, like to get out wide, like to utilize the middle of the field last third. Um, I think we could see some goals in that game, but I think some of the games that we're going to see later on in the, in the competition and knockout stages are going to be a little more of a grind-it-out type of game listen to this podcast for a long time knows how much Danny loves uh, loves excuse me loves Italian soccer and you know this is one of those teams that hasn't gotten a lot of um, you know attention from what I've seen how far can this go and how far are they from being back to being one of those teams that everybody looks to and one of those nations that everybody looks to as the guy as the nation that can uh, make some noise. Yeah, I mean, this team, they might not be ranked high in the FIFA World Rankings, which you should always take it with a grain of salt. I don't know what is used to compute that, but they are a young team. They have great young players. They're dynamic in the midfield. They have good wing play, a veteran defense, one of the top goalkeepers in the world, and this really smart coach that the Federation has invested in. Um, which you don't really see a lot in international soccer. He is on a contract until 2026. So they've given him eight years from 2018 on to, you know, really build a program and build a team. And I think we've seen that. They haven't lost in 30 games. They haven't conceded in 11. Um, and my, my interest with this team moving forward, which I, I you know, I don't want them to, to lose, but, what will they look like if they fall down a goal? You know, one nothing. Well, how will they respond? How will they be able to react? They've been so used to playing ahead or, you know, within the game that they haven't really had to face that adversity. I think tomorrow is a good, a good matchup for them. I, I like the way they're set up. Uh, you know, their competition is going to come if they move on tomorrow playing a team like Belgium or Portugal in the quarterfinals and then – Spain makes it to the semifinals playing Spain. So, I mean, they, they, they face a gauntlet, you know, just getting to the finals with the way the bracket is set up. So I'll be interested to see how they, you know, react to situations like that. I hope that they, they don't have to. I hope tomorrow is a straightforward game for them and they can look, you know, ahead to the quarterfinals and play their Belgium or Portugal. But uh, I've been impressed with what they've done. Um, I expect that after this, with the more time these players get playing at the high levels of, the, of their clubs and understanding the initiatives that they have for them, you know, with the national team, that this team could be, you know, in the discussion in 2022, you know, as a potential, you know, title contender for the World Cup. But um, they're good. They've been one of the most impressive teams I've seen, and I've watched pretty much every game. They've been one of the mo- most impressive teams that have played so far at the Euros. Um. And just to button up something, or mop up, or whatever the right phrasing is, something from before, um, Italy is the seventh ranked team right now in the FIFA uh, World uh, Rankings. Belgium, France, Brazil, England, Portugal, Spain, um, Italy, um, Argentina, Uruguay, and Denmark. Those are your top ten. So, moving on up, Italy is. Moving on up. Um... Who comes out of this as the winners of of the Euros? And for the folks who may not understand the importance of this, to be European champions, is this equivalent 
to the Champions League for these guys in terms of, you know, like, if the Champions League is the best of Europe with your club squad, is this the best of, of Europe with your country? Is that the best way to look at this? Yeah, it is sense. Obviously, the World Cup is the biggest trophy yeah. that you want to be able to raise. But I think when we look at competitions, um, you know, Euro, the Euro Cup is maybe even more exciting and prestigious than the World Cup at times, depending on, you know, how it falls. But I think for a lot of teams, um, I think this year means a little bit more to to both teams and nations because of what we just went through and what people have gone through. Um, you know, different countries have, have experienced a lot of different things. But I think that this year there's a lot more pride and a lot more emotion involved in what's going on. And I think that, you know, one thing that we've seen with sports in, in this time um, is that it's an opportunity for people to step out a little bit of reality and understand that they can get away for a little bit and, and root for something they're passionate about. So I think this year might carry a little bit more weight just because of that. Um, you know, the players maybe wanting to give their, their country an opportunity for some optimism, for some joy. Um, so I think this is a uniquely positioned tournament in that sense. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, there's a lot of countries left that are some of the top countries in the world as far as soccer is concerned. But um, I think this one's going to hold a special place in a lot of fans' hearts if their teams are able to make it. Um, when you look at this group of 16, and the way that the matchups are loaded on the left side, not loaded on the right side, who ends up in the final and who wins Euro 2020? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's tough, uh, you know, looking at it, trying to be objective here and not, like, you know, obviously put my own interests ahead of what, you know, reality might be. But I, I think you're looking at potentially Belgium and France in the semis. Um, you know, obviously, I think Italy can make it there, but I do think Belgium is really strong. They have some of the best players in the world. Um, can they handle the pressure? Is going to be interesting. Um, but I think you're going to see a Belgium and France semifinal on the left side. Uh, I can't remember exactly the matchups on the right side, but if you're an England fan, you have to like the way it's set up for you. It'd be really shocking if England doesn't make it there. Um, I don't know if they have to play the Netherlands or not to get there. Um, well, you know. yeah, to that point, um, it's them versus Germany, and then it's Sweden versus Ukraine. They should beat Germany, so that's one win. And then it's Netherlands, Czech Republic, Wales, and Denmark. So they would play uh, the Netherlands, hypothetically England would, in the semis. Got it, yeah. So, I mean, that England-Germany game, don't write off Germany just because they've looked bad. That's a team that understands how to win, um, even though they've been a little disorganized and in transition. They still have some quality players. Um, you know, I think the surprise team on that side of the bracket might be Denmark, um, and I'm rooting for them 110 percent, given everything that they've gone through oh and the way the tournament started for them. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the best games of the tournament was them versus Russia the other day, so I'm rooting for them big time. Um, and I'd like to see them make it as far as they can. The Netherlands, 
they're a strong team in the sense that they have some, you know, flair to them. I just don't trust their coaching um, enough to, to back them. I don't think their coach is risky. And he doesn't have, I guess, in a sense, a, a set of, of balls, you know, to make the right decisions and to to really play a style that can get them far. But I think, again, just looking at it, it might be in England, Denmark, fine, uh, semifinal there. Um, you know, the one thing England has in favor of them that a lot of these teams don't, even with the format that we've seen this year, is that they are only going to play one away game. Yeah. If they make it all the way to the finals. Uh, and I believe that away game is on Saturday. I uh, believe they play um, all the other games for them would line up in London and Wembley. So they have an extreme advantage at a stadium they've never really lost in. So, um, England has everything in front of them as far as getting to the final. Um, so I think I'll take England versus, uh, versus France in the final and France in uh, 2-1. But for me, it's like you take this situation and it's right in Italy's pockets because, you know, least amount of travel, it's a familiar place. You're not having time zone issues or hotel changes or anything like that. It's a really, really plays into their hands. Yeah, they have the most advantageous schedule. Um, definitely, of everybody has played. Um, will they take advantage of it? We'll see. I mean, that game in, on Tuesday for them against Germany is a big hurdle for them. Uh, again, I wouldn't discount Germany at all. They have the quality, they have the experience. Um, England has been a little bit, you know, conservative with their approach, maybe on purpose, maybe not, who knows, but they do have a risk-adverse manager who doesn't like to take those types of chances. Um, the thing that concerns me about England is that they haven't really scored at all. Um, they had two goals in the group stage, and they haven't conceded, which is good, but you got to score unless you're going to PKs. And I don't think England fans want to see their team going to PKs, you know, in any sort of competition. So it's going to be important for them to have uh, some, um, you know, optimism in their attacking style this, uh, on Tuesday. Otherwise, they're going to be in for a, a slugfest with the Germany team that, that has enough quality there to, to knock them out. You will see that game at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on ESPN. We will get back to the Euros in a second. I want to talk about this other piece of soccer news with Danny Flecky here on Teeing It Up. We have talked, uh, Danny, at nauseum about the, the, this whole concept of, of aggregate uh, scores and, and just the way that these leagues and these games and you know especially things like Champions League are set up with the home and the away and now this is huge news starting next year from UEFA which is that as a tiebreaker um, for this aggregate the away goals rule um, will go away um, as the, as the tiebreaker the, the team that had scored the most goals uh, as the away side were were previously awarded victory now it's not now any ties will have extra time or penalties explaining this the head of UEFA, um, Alexander Shefferin, said that the impact of the rule now runs counter to its purpose as in fact it now dissuades home teams, especially in first legs, from attacking because they, they fear conceding a goal that would give their opponents a crucial advantage. 
There is also a criticism of the unfairness, especially in extra time, of obliging the home team to score twice when the away team has scored. Um, it is fair to say that home advantage is nowadays no longer a, as significant as it once was, taking into consideration the consistency across Europe in, in terms of styles of play and many different factors uh, which have led to a decline in home advantage. The uh, UEFA executive committee has taken the correct decision in a, uh, 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 correct decision to adopt the view that it is no longer appropriate for an away goal to carry more weight than one scored at home. Your thoughts, Mr. Flacco? I mean, I think you hit, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, and the biggest piece is like just the style of play that you see in some of these games where you know, an away team could score one goal on the road in the first leg, and in the second, in the second leg, they just sitting back and not doing anything. Um, so, I think it makes it easier to approach these games, understanding, hey, we just got to play. We play our game. We understand that if we score two goals and the other team scores two goals, we're still in this. Um, and it also, I think, makes it a little bit easier for fans to follow. Um, you don't have to worry about the weight of the goals or anything like that. You can understand, hey, my team is down one nothing in the second leg. We just got to score one goal. No matter if we're home or away, we should have score one goal and, or two goals, whatever it is, to understand that we still got a, our skin in this game. So I, I think it's overdue. I think it's easier to understand. I think that we'll get better soccer out of it, and I think we'll see um, more exciting games um, rather than games that are just you know kind of drawn out or um, – Slow. Um, so I think it's about time that they made these decisions. It's, I think it's going to be a good good change for them. Plotting was, I think, a term you, you once used with me uh, to uh, describe what one of the legs was for um, some competition. Quickly, do you think there's going to be a complaint from some of these clubs about... Um, or, or just somebody within these clubs about potentially having to play players more because now you end up in extra time and, and, and penalties, or, or will all these things which we just you know discuss things being simplified, you know so on and so forth, kind of override everything else? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure people will complain. I think the best way to approach these situations is that you play your game and you don't worry about all the other things that come with it. I think it's. Uh, an easy crush that we've seen a lot in, in a lot of sports in general where, where coaches and players are just so quick to complain about everything. It's part of the game, right? It's part of the process. You understand that if it's a tie, even if it was a, a zero zero after two legs, like you're still playing that extra time, um, regardless. So I think people need to understand, especially from a players and coaching perspective, that it takes guts to win games and to win trophies whether you're in soccer in football and basketball it takes guts and determination and quality and if you want to win those things you got to be able to understand that so i think maybe these coaches need to stop complaining if that's what they're going to do and understand that when you spend millions and millions and millions of dollars buying all these players and if you're not playing them because you're worried about them getting too many extra minutes well then you know put other players in or just understand how to approach the competition a little bit better. Uh, I, I think uh, I won't feel sorry if a coach complains that they have to worry about how many game, you know, how many minutes a player is playing. I, and I think we also have to take into consideration that this year, 
was very, very odd. You know, we had a very truncated schedule, and players had a lot of games under their belt this year, and hopefully as as we get back to normal and, and normal schedules, it'll be a little bit separated. Um, but I think for teams in competitions, they have to identify what's their priority. Do they want to win the domestic league? Do they want to win the domestic cup? Or do they want to win Champions League? And then you approach the season in that manner, and then you, you manage your team in that way. But I think that if teams play a little bit more of an open style and don't necessarily sit back and wait for the game to come to them, then we might be able to avoid these you know, dragged out games or extra time games. So I, I think I think we actually will see a little bit more of the competition be played out in regular time than in extra time. Danny, um, I've got a couple weddings in July. You've got some traveling in July. Um, on July 31st, or actually, let's look at it this way. July 25th, uh, one month from today as we record this, who is Aaron Rodgers playing for? I think it's going to be the Packers. I just don't see what their motivation is to, to part ways with him. Um, but is he playing for the Packers? I guess that's a lot to be determined on his end. I, I think if you're the Packers, you have no motivation to trade him. If you're Aaron Rodgers and you still got to stick up your butt and you don't want to play for them, then don't play for them. Um, I, I just don't see them having any desire to get rid of him because what do they get in return? Uh, nothing. If anything, that they're, they're set back for years. So um, I don't see him getting traded. If he plays, he plays. If he doesn't play, he doesn't play. But I, I would also think that if he doesn't play, he holds very little value moving forward too. Because I just don't think people are gonna want to deal with some of his BS that he's shown that he has and carries with him the last couple of years. How much do you like the fact that the NFL is now allowing uh, throwback helmets and the fact that they are, um, you know, starting a bid system for the combine, if you would like to do the combine in some other place? The, the throwbacks, I really get it when you look at it, the NFL is just monetizing their product as yeah. much as they can every single time. You create the throwback uniforms, you create more revenue from a merch perspective. The bidding system, again, you create more revenue-generating dollars for the NFL. It's all about hitting that target Goodell set, whatever it was when he took over. I think it was, what, $50 billion or something like that. These are all just pieces of his puzzle to generate more revenue for um, you know, the NFL. Um, and from a product standpoint, It'll be cool to see some of these throwback uniforms. Some of them should never be put back on the field. I'm sure they will, though. Um, but, you know, we'll probably see some really interesting, you know, uniforms come back. I know we had the AFL anniversary 15, 20, 15 16 years ago, and we saw some cool uniforms, like, the, the, you know, the throwback Patriots uniform is a nice one. Um, you know, we know San Diego has a bunch of nice throwback uniforms. Um, but... It'd be interesting to see what they, you know, what teams choose to take advantage of that. But at the end of the day, it's all about just generating revenue. Um, when you look at the way um, sports are constructed right now, because we've seen a lot, you know, with the NBA and the changes they're going to make in the offseason uh, and, and trying to cut down on ticky-tack fouls. Um, 
what sport right now has a rule that you'd want to fix ASAP? I mean, after watching, I mean, I'm not going to even get into baseball because I think we have a whole separate pod on that. Um, yeah, seriously. But, Sticky stuff could be its whole podcast, whole separate podcast. But I think when I watch basketball, the the foul calls on the the bring the ball around, when you, like, bring the ball around in the defender's space and his arms there getting called for that, and the landing space foul, I get it. But especially the landing space foul, I get it if you're like endangering the shooter. Yeah. But those fouls are as such a detriment to the flow of the game and the way the game is played that I don't think people understand how frustrating it is watching those fouls continuously get called. Um, I also like them to see the, the get the the one where the players jump into the, the defender. Yes, the that's just the one that's there. being tweaked for next season, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I think they need to get rid of that. But, I mean, there's so many things you can change about every sport. I, I think I saw something the other day that the last two minutes of the Clippers-Suns game took 32 minutes. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, come on. Like, I, I, went, I was watching that game, and I was like, all right, I've had enough. I didn't even see the end of it, and it was a hell of an ending. So I was just like, I can't keep watching them go to video replay and and figuring out what the hell is going on. Like, and every single time that a, a play happens, the, the, the players are complaining, like, review this, review this, review this. And I think it's just gotten a little bit to be too much, to be honest. But well, what do I know? I don't play the game, I don't coach, and I don't ref. So I'm just, you know, venting from a fan side of things. Um, needless to say, um, it, 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 it's just one of those things that just makes you speechless. And there's there's nothing that you can say other than the fact that when we, you know, sit down to watch, um, this takes forever. And we went through an entire podcast, one that heavily focused on soccer, without mentioning VAR once. Yeah, and I think VAR <laughs> has been has been okay during the Euros, um, but still. It, I think a lot of times with like these replay challenges and, and and things, it takes away from the ability for the people on the field to be able to be in control of the game. And with players complaining every single time something happens, it puts more and more pressure on the refs to utilize the resources they have. And I also think some refs use it because they're afraid to make calls or they're like, okay, I'll make a call, but I know that in my back pocket, if I make it and it's wrong, I'll just be reversed. So I think that's a lot of what happens, too. You know, that these refs are like, oh, we'll make the call, but if we're 50-50, we'll just go look at it. What's the big deal? You know, we have this availability to us. So I think there's, you know, definitely some tweaks. I think it's a very simple tweak that you can get someone in the booth, which a lot of these sports have, that could just say, hey, like you made that call, it's wrong, fix it, or like, hey, you made the right call, keep it going. Like, just have someone in their ear saying that. I don't think we have to have these refs go to monitors to look at plays. You know, like, I think it's a very simple and straightforward concept, but, you know, we got to see the ref do the square box, run over to the sideline, look at the, look at the mirror, I mean, look at the video, just for someone to tell him what to do. So, but we'll see how this keeps evolving. Um, 
there's a lot going on and a lot to evolve and a lot to get to a place where hopefully this can get sped up and the flow of the game doesn't get um, uh, that interrupted. Uh, one word, who wins Euros? I told you, France. There you go. It's France, folks. Danny Flecka, thank you for coming on Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. As always, I appreciate it. No problem, man. Have a good rest of the day. You got it. Same to you, and enjoy the rest of your day, everybody.